Colossians chapter 2. Today is the Agony of Victory, part 10. Today we're going to be talking about praying in the Spirit and praying in tongues. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word that is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Thank you that your word is clear. Thank you that your word is, is not just authoritative. It, it doesn't merely have authority, but it is the absolute rule for doctrine and for practice within the church. It is the absolute rule for what we do or what we don't do. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you have given us a plumb line, a measuring rod, that you've given us clear precepts and direction and guidelines and boundaries. Thank you, Lord. And yet, thank you that at the same time, in some incredible, mysterious dichotomy, there is no box that can contain you. And yet, that just illustrates the depth and the richness of your word. That though we could count the pages, we could never measure the depth of it the wonders of it. It's as deep as you are, Lord. It's your word. Jesus, you are the word. And we just ask that this morning you would reveal yourself to us in a wonderful and fresh way, that you would continue to teach us as individuals and as a body how to pray, that you would take us deeper in prayer this morning. Lord, I ask that you would anoint me to rightly discern the word, to rightly divide the word that you would guide us in interpretation and that you would just bless our hearts incredibly in what you have for us in praying in the Spirit and in the gift of tongues. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, let's read our theme verse that launched this ever so long ago one more time. Colossians chapter 2, verse 1. The Apostle Paul says, For I want you to know how great a struggle, you remember that Greek word agon, we've talked about what that means. I want you to know how great a struggle I have had on your behalf and for all those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face. Now bring to mind once again that thing which so impressed us a few months ago. The fact that Paul was struggling for these individuals in prayer, though they had never seen him and he had never seen them. He did not know them personally. He knew one cat. His name was Epaphras. We talked about him in the last chapter. And he came to report to Paul what was going on in the region of the Lycus Valley there in modern-day Turkey. And Paul is in a prison cell in Rome. He's imprisoned for his faith. He doesn't know these people. He doesn't know their individual lives. But he's struggling for them in prayer. And so we, we can discern that when Paul went to pray for them, There were a few things that he knew because Epaphras came and reported to him. And there's a few things he knew just because Paul understood human nature. You know, to a large degree, we're all the same. But even though there was a few things Paul would know, there were many things Paul didn't know. There's many things that he didn't know about their individual lives. Many things he didn't know about the the, the spiritual climate or, or really what was going on in the spiritual realm in that place per se. 
what was going on in relationships, what was being said on a day-to-day basis, because it was a long time from when Epaphras left the Lycus Valley and went all the way to Rome, some few thousand miles away, to report to Paul. It's been a long time. And so there's a few things Paul would know as he went to pray for them, and there were many things that he wouldn't know. And yet we see that he was struggling in prayer. That means that he wasn't praying brief little popcorn prayers. You know what I mean? It wasn't just, Lord, bless them. Lord, keep them. Amen. It wasn't just that. I mean, he was really struggling. So there was some time spent in prayer. There was fervor. There was intensity. There was passion. There was unction. Paul was praying with a knowledge that was beyond his own. He was praying with a burden for them that was beyond his own. And he was praying prayers that were beyond his own heart and ability in prayer. Paul, when he would pray for Laodicea and the Colossians, was praying in the Spirit. Our topic today. He was praying in the Spirit. Now, I might note for those of you that are or visiting or, or just don't know, and it's okay if you don't know, when we say praying in the Spirit, we mean the Holy Spirit. We mean the third person of the Trinity. We mean God, okay? We're talking about God's Spirit when we say praying in the Spirit. Later on, we'll talk about the Spirit of man, but we're talking about the Spirit of God. Praying in the Spirit is, is absolutely necessary, to our prayer lives. In fact, Charles Spurgeon taught that it's not true prayer unless it's prayer in the Spirit. He said that uh, the Holy Spirit himself must be present all through it, must help in our weaknesses, and must give life and power to our prayers. It's not true prayer unless it's prayer in the Spirit, Charles Spurgeon said. Another man whose name we won't concern ourselves with said this many years ago, We must pray in the Spirit if we would pray at all. Lay this, I beseech you, to heart. Do not address yourselves to prayer as to a work to be accomplished in your own natural strength. Note that, mark that, listen to that. Do not address yourselves to prayer as to a work to be accomplished in your own natural strength. It is a work of God, of God the Holy Ghost. A work of His in you and by you and in which you must be fellow workers with him, but it is his work nonetheless. Notice that. Prayer is not to be undertaken in your own strength. It's a work of God. It it happens in you and it happens by you and and you co-labor with the Lord in it, but ultimately it is a work of the Lord, your prayer life at the end. So to pray effectively means to pray in the Spirit, really to pray at all is to pray in the Spirit. But with regards to that little phrase, pray in the Spirit, that notion, there are in the church many misconceptions. And I think that today you'll be blessed by our study to find out that it's not so mysterious, it's not so difficult. In fact, I would even guess that for most of you, most of the time you pray, you're probably praying in the Spirit. You just may be having to attach that phraseology to it. Now, We will talk about praying in tongues or employing a prayer language towards the end of the sermon, but praying in tongues is not what is meant when we say praying in the Spirit. At least biblically speaking, those two phrases are not interchangeable. 
popularly, we often use them interchangeably. We might be talking about praying in tongues or using your prayer language, and we might say, I was praying in the Spirit. That seems to be a a popular use of the terminology, but technically speaking, correctly speaking, all prayer must be praying in the Spirit. And then praying in tongues is one facet of praying in the Spirit. But in that concept of praying in the Spirit, all prayer is encompassed. Now we get the directive from the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, verse 18, a passage that we're familiar with, where the Apostle Paul says that we should, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. So he says emphatically, That we're to pray at all times in the Spirit. We also see that command from Jude in the book of Jude, verse 20, where it says that we are to be praying in the Holy Spirit. Now, when the Apostle Paul writes that in Ephesians 6, 18, that we're to pray at all times in the Spirit, this means that there shouldn't be any prayer that isn't in the Spirit. All prayer is to be in the Spirit. We'll define that in a moment. The phrase and the concept encompass all prayer. It is simply the correct or the only way to pray is in the Spirit. And so, church, wouldn't you agree? You've got to know what that means. Now, in the New Testament, there are other activities that we're told we can do in the Spirit as well just to see that it's broader than just the scope of prayer being in the Spirit. It's possible that you can just be in the Spirit, as John was when he received the Revelation. We see that in Revelation 1 and Revelation 4. It's possible to rejoice in the Holy Spirit. We see in the book of Luke 10.21 that Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. It's possible to resolve or decide something, to make a decision in the Holy Spirit. Paul did that in Acts 19.21. We see that you can have one's conscience bear witness in the Holy Spirit. Paul said that in Romans 9.1 when he began to talk about his burden for the nation of Israel. He says, I am not lying. My conscience bearing witness in the Holy Spirit. Uh, We have access to God in the Holy Spirit. The book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 18. And Paul commended the church in Colossae in chapter 1, verse 18, for their love in the Spirit. So you see, we can love in the Spirit, we have access in the Spirit, we can make decisions in the Spirit, uh, we can have our, 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 our conscience bear witness in the Spirit, we can rejoice in the Spirit, we can just be in the Spirit, but it is required for prayer that we are in the Spirit. That is a clear directive of the New Testament. Wayne Grudem, in commenting on uh, these New Testament possibilities of being in the Spirit for these different activities, in his book, Systematic Theology, says this, These expressions seem to refer to dwelling consciously in the presence of the Holy Spirit himself. A presence characterized by the godlike qualities of power, love, joy, truth, holiness, righteousness, and peace. So at the very outset, at the very core of it, to state in the beginning, to pray in the Holy Spirit then is to pray with a conscious awareness of God's presence in you and around you. It is to pray with a conscious awareness of God's presence in you 
and around you. And really, we could break it down into two categories as to how it works. Category number one would be atmosphere and attitude. And I'll explain that. But basically, it's man praying in the atmosphere produced by the Holy Spirit and dwelling and surrounding him. The second category into which we will break this up today is assistance and instruction. That is to say, the Holy Spirit himself leading man in and to prayer and the Spirit praying in and through man. Now let's talk about that first category, atmosphere and attitude. Man praying in the atmosphere produced by the Spirit and dwelling and surrounding him. The idea is simply this. It's really basic. When you pray, you want to be in the Spirit. You want to be in the Spirit practically. You want to be cognizant of the fact that you're in the Spirit. You want to be purposeful to draw near to the Holy Spirit when you begin to pray. And what it means to be in the Spirit is very easy. It's really kind of the opposite of being in the flesh. Now, who knows what it means to be in the flesh? How many are in the flesh more than they would like to be? You know what it means to be in the flesh. I know what it means to be in the flesh. It means very simply to be dwelling on earthly things. It means to be ruled by carnal things or carnal desires, to be directed by sinful passions. It means to be exalting your own agenda and your own will and even to be exalting yourself. You know what I mean when you're in the flesh? You're making those carnal, selfish decisions. You're being ruled by the passions of the old man. You're you're really caught up in earthly things, in temporal things, in the flesh. Now, to be in the Spirit is just the polar opposite of that. It, It means to be dwelling on heavenly things. It means to be ruled by spiritual things and spiritual realities and the Spirit of God. It means to be directed by righteousness. It means to exalt the Lord's agenda, the Lord's will, and the person and identity of Jesus Christ. Turn just a a couple pages to Colossians 3. There's a good description of it in the first three verses of Colossians 3. It says... If then you have been raised up with Christ, that is a description that you've been saved. What do I mean by being saved? I mean that you recognize that you're a sinner, that you've sinned against God, but you've been enlightened with the fact that God is a Savior and that he draped himself in humanity in the person of Jesus Christ and died upon the cross to pay a price for your sin and for my sin that we might receive forgiveness and the promise of eternal life. And so to be raised up with Christ means that you've come to God and said, God, I'm a sinner. But I understand that you're the Savior. Save me according to what Jesus did on the cross. Forgive my sins. Wash me. Give me a second chance. Give me the promise of eternal life. So if that's you, you've been raised up with Christ. And here's to be the tone and tenor of our life then. It says in the next phrase, Keep seeking the things above. Keep seeking. A verb there, it's active. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Verse 2, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. 
And, and so here's a great picture of being in the Spirit. It means that you keep seeking. It's, it's in the tense that means you are continually always seeking the things that are above, the heavenly things. Remember when Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, seek first the kingdom of God? Remember that? Seek first the kingdom of God. And, and so you're seeking the kingdom of God, the plan of God, the will of God, the glory of God, the word of God, the people of God, the purpose of God. That's paramount in your mind and in your heart. Set your mind on these things. I, I, I love that phraseology, set your mind on these things. You know, I'm not very smart, and so I like to break it down in a way that I could understand. I just picture myself opening up my little skull and taking out my mind and just setting it on the things of God. Not exalted over the things of God, but that it just might be just connected to the things of God. You know what I mean? Just that the things of God would begin to permeate my mind. And I'm, 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 I'm weird, but I just picture my mind just melting down into the kingdom of God and the things of God. Really, the idea is this, that my will would be consumed in the will of God. That my identity would be consumed in the identity of Christ. That's the idea there. Setting your mind on the things above, not on the things of the earth. Because so often, church, if we were to be honest, we're consumed with the things of the earth, aren't we? And yet, over and over, the Bible says not to walk by sight, but to walk by faith. But it's so much easier to walk by sight. So much easier to act according to what we see as opposed to what we don't see. But faith is a hope of things not seen. We're to walk by faith. We're to be cognizant of and focusing on the things that are above. And really, that's what it means to be in the Spirit. To have your mind set on the things of God and to be seeking the Lord. James 4, 7 comes to mind where he says, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. Draw near to me and I will draw near to you. And so there is that idea of just being in his presence tangibly, cognizantly. Because really you're always in the presence of God because you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. First Corinthians 6 tells us that the Spirit dwells in you, you know. But isn't it amazing how you could just totally just shut that off and just not think a thought about the Lord and not even sense that holiness or that power and we just get all caught up in who we are? Being in the Spirit is coming out of who we are and getting into who He is and and practicing that presence as some people have put it in history. And and so when I do this, when I want to get in the Spirit, because a lot of times, quite frankly, I'm in the flesh. When I want to get in the Spirit, I, I start praising the Lord. I just start praising the Lord. It's very biblical, isn't it? That's the way we're to enter into His uh, gates and His courts. I, I start just praising the Lord, you know, in an attitude of prayer. And then I start thanking the Lord for the cross and for the work of salvation. I thank Him for what I've been saved from and what I've been saved to. And so I'm praising Him, which begins to set my mind on Him and who He is. I'm thanking him, which wells up in my heart that attitude of gratitude that's necessary for approaching the Lord. And then that, what that does is, is very quickly, really, unless I'm really messed up, pretty quickly that gets me into the Spirit. You know, the Lord doesn't want to make it difficult for you to be in the Spirit. It's his will that you would be in the Spirit, that you would walk according to the Spirit so you won't carry out the deeds of the flesh, Galatians chapter 5 says. We're to be always in the Spirit, but if you find yourself getting out of it or getting out of step with the Spirit, just just stop 
And just say, oh, Lord, I, I want to just get back to the awareness of your presence and your holiness. And so just start to praise him. Start to thank him. Uh, rejoice in your salvation. And, and for me, it brings me into the spirit, in that place where I'm conscious of his dwelling in me, his presence around me, his power upon me, his work through me, his will for me, his glory, his peace, his plan, his love, and his goodness. This is the atmosphere of the Holy Spirit that is brought on by the attitude of seeking first His righteousness, of drawing near to Him. You understand that? You understand that? Now, it's, it's sad how quickly man can vacillate between the two. How quickly man could be in the Spirit one second and then just totally in the flesh. And man, won't you be stoked when we go to heaven because that won't be happening anymore? We'll be done away with all that, you know what I mean? But it's amazing how quickly we can vacillate now. And Peter, at Caesarea Philippi in Matthew 16, is a great example of that. Jesus said to the disciples, "Uh, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And the Lord said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but the Father who is in heaven. You know, Peter was in the Spirit. He was hearing from the Lord. He was in the presence of the Lord. He was speaking and acting according to righteousness. And the Lord said, right on, you're blessed, Peter. This is good. There's just a great picture of him just acting and moving and speaking in the Spirit. And then just a few moments later, the Lord reveals the cross to the boys. And he says, now pretty soon we're going to go to Jerusalem. And I'll be delivered into the hands of the chief priests and the Pharisees. And I'll go to the cross. And and we're told in Matthew chapter 16 that Peter takes him aside in verse 22. And he begins to rebuke the Lord. Don't rebuke the Lord. Peter begins to rebuke the Lord. He says, Lord, may this never be. It'll never go down like that. And just that sobering, almost horrific response of Jesus in verse 23, where he says, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You see, Peter, in just a few moments, vacillated from being in the Spirit and hearing from the Spirit of God to being in the flesh because his mind was now set on the things of man. And, and truthfully, when he got in the flesh and he had his mind set on the things of man, he opened himself up to the influence of the enemy. And the Lord rebuked it, thankfully. But you see how quickly we could vacillate between the two? And, and what the difference was, was the mindset. We might just say Peter was in the flesh because he set his, his mind on the things of man. If he had been thinking about the Lord, perhaps he would have said, wow, that sounds like a fulfillment of Isaiah 53, Jesus. And that sounds like Psalm 22. And you're, you're the servant of the Lord. Okay, awesome, you know what I mean. But he was thinking about the things of man. It doesn't make sense to me, Lord. And that doesn't sound good to me, Lord, and I don't like that. That's really what was taking place. And atmosphere, and and I don't mean atmosphere in the carnal sense. I don't mean air conditioning and lighting. That's not what I mean. I don't mean greenery. But but atmosphere is very important. 
And if you want to talk about it in a carnal sense, if you want to put about it in a practical sense for a moment, atmosphere can really affect the quality of one's work. I mean, if you take someone to an atmosphere that is hot and muggy and tropical and swampy, even the strongest, most diligent man becomes weak and lazy in that sort of atmosphere. You know what I'm talking about? You ever been there? But you, you can take even the laziest sluggard to an environment or an atmosphere that is crisp and invigorating. And even the sluggard finds it hard to be lazy. I mean, there just seems to be this, just this life that he breathes in in the atmosphere. Now, put that into the spiritual context. And Gordon Cove, in his book entitled Revival Now Through Prayer and Fasting, says this, The difference between prayer on the mere level of our natural perceptions and sympathies and praying in the Spirit is not unlike the difference between the drudgery on a tropical swamp and the exhilaration of climbing a mountain. Here's what it means. If you seek to pray in the atmosphere of the flesh, it's drudgery for you. It's hard for you. It's not fun. It's labor. It's just a bummer. But prayer was not meant for you to do in the flesh. Prayer was not meant for you to do in your own strength. It was meant to be done in the Spirit and according to the strength of the Spirit. And the difference between the two is like the difference between being stuck in a hot, nasty swamp and being up on the top of the mountains. That's the difference. And so the atmosphere of the Holy Spirit, as you seek Him and draw into it, makes all the difference in the world for our prayer lives. Samuel Chadwick, in his book on prayer, says, The Spirit creates the conditions for prayer. We can ask amiss, not only in what we ask, but also in the reason for asking. But the Holy Spirit sanctifies desire and directs it into the will of God so that we desire what God wills to give. He quickens desires, purifies motives, inspires confidence, and assures faith. You see, it's hard to even escape those things if you're in the Spirit. Those things are just abounding. They're just functioning. They're just there when you're in the presence of the Lord. Amen? You understand what I mean? Now, now the second idea that we want to talk about with regards to praying in the Spirit is assistance and instruction. The Holy Spirit provides assistance and instruction for our prayer life. And, and the sentence that I wrote here says, the Holy Spirit himself leading man in and to prayer and the Spirit praying in and through man. The idea here is praying with the leading, the knowledge, the insight, and the power of the Spirit. That's what Paul would have had to have done when he was there in that prison cell in Rome. I mean, to pray effectively for those people that he had never seen and did not know, he would need the leading of the Spirit. That's praying in the Spirit. He would need the knowledge of the Spirit. That's praying in the Spirit. He would need insight from the Spirit. That's praying in the Spirit. And, and to labor in prayer like it says struggle, agon, to strive in that way would require the power of the Spirit. Turn to Luke chapter 11, if you would. Luke chapter 11.
Now, we've talked about Luke 11 before. When we spoke about importunity in prayer. We're going to look starting in verse 9. Verse 9 is familiar to us. Luke 11, verse 9. Jesus says, And I say to you, Ask, and it shall be given to you. Literally in the Greek, keep asking, and it shall be given to you. Seek, or keep seeking, and ye shall find. Knock, or keep knocking, and it shall be opened to you. The, the idea there of importunity that we've spoken of, of persistence and increasing, ever increasing in fervency. Now verse 10. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it shall be opened. And then he gives an illustration here. Now, suppose one of you fathers, he was talking to some fathers, one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He's not going to give him a snake instead of a fish, is he? No. Verse 12. Or if he's asked for an egg, he'll not give him a scorpion, will he? No. My son, um, he lost his two front teeth yesterday. It was awesome. Lost them in the same morning. I don't know why they came out at the same time, but these two top front ones. And the first one, he lost eating a cookie. Uh, first thing he had for breakfast, I don't know why my wife and I were out of our minds, but he had a cookie, and he said he was chewing the cookie, and he thought it was a chocolate chip, and he couldn't break the chip, he said. And so he pulled it out, and he said, and Papa, it was my tooth, and he was all excited. And he got so excited about having the tooth that the next one, he muscled out of his mouth. It was unbelievable. There was all sorts of blood, and he's just going, mm, mm, and he was twisting it all the way around. And he twisted it and he goes, Daddy, look. And it's backwards and sticking up. <laughs> it was unbelievable. And he got that thing out. And the reason that he worked so hard to get that thing out was he figured double presents from the tooth fairy. He said, I got one, baby. I'm going for two. Now, we... You know, when it comes to the tooth fairy and Santa Claus and stuff like that, Easter Bunny in our home, we don't let the kids think that's real. We want them to know that Jesus Christ is real. But we don't want them to miss out on cool things like getting junk for your teeth, you know? <laughs> so we've just told them from day one, Mama is a tooth fairy and she'll give you good stuff. And so he put those under his pillow expecting something good. And man, we had a VeggieTale video for him that taught him some awesome Bible lessons. And at about midnight last night, I went and I took those little teeth and put them in a Ziploc bag and put them in my office right on my desk. And I slipped that good little video under there. And that's what Jesus is talking about. Every father knows how to give good gifts to his son. Now look at the next verse. 13, verse 13. If you then being evil, I love the way God just calls it like it is. If you then being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Now, I want you to notice that this verse that is often quoted, ask the Father for the Holy Spirit and He'll give the Holy Spirit to you, was originally verbalized in the context of prayer. Did you catch that? This whole passage from verse 1 all the way down, is all about prayer. And what Jesus wanted to do as he ended this little discourse in prayer is make the disciples mindful of the fact that to pray, they needed the Holy Spirit. 
And so he says your Heavenly Father wants to give you good gifts. The first one you ought to ask for is the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is necessary for prayer. We see it again in John 14. It's the evening of the Last Supper. Verses 13 through 17 says, Jesus speaking, And whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, and that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever, that is, the Spirit of truth. Now, I want you to notice that Jesus here introduces the Holy Spirit once again in the context of prayer. There's no question what he's talking about. Ask in my name and it shall be given unto you. He's speaking about prayer. And then he says, with regards to prayer, I'm going to ask the Father for a helper for you. Because what he's saying effectively is you can't pray alone. You cannot pray apart from the Holy Spirit. And so I'm going to ask the Father and he's going to give you a helper who is the Spirit of truth. A few verses later, in verse 26, he speaks again of the Holy Spirit and says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. And then in chapter 16, verse 13, Jesus says, But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. So notice what the Jesus, what the Jesus, what Jesus says about the Holy Spirit. He says that the Holy Spirit is the Helper, for prayer, that he is the teacher and that he is the guide. Now, he is those things for all areas of life, but we're talking about prayer right now. The Holy Spirit is the one who teaches you how to pray. And like anything else in the Christian life, it's a discipline that needs to be learned and it needs to be practiced. Anything that you have from the Lord is to be developed, you understand, And so the Holy Spirit is the one that helps to develop our prayer lives. You'll remember that Jesus was asked by the disciples, teach us how to pray. That's how Luke 11 opens up in verse 1. Teach us how to pray. But you see, we have another teacher for how to pray, another helper, another guide. That is the Holy Spirit. And so true prayer is prayer that is in the Spirit, prayer that the Spirit inspires, directs, and leads. Now, I love this quote by Gordon Cove, again from the book Revival Now Through Prayer and Fasting. It says, Until the Holy Spirit comes upon us in prayer, we are shut up to the spiritual senses, and we can no more feel the throb of the great currents which course through the spiritual world then fish in the glass cases of an aquarium can feel the ebb and flow of the ocean tides. That's an, that's an unbelievable truth. I, I want to read it one more time. Until the Holy Spirit comes upon us in prayer, we're shut up to the spiritual senses, and we can no more feel the throb of the great currents which course through the spiritual world than fish in the aquarium can possibly feel the ebb and the flow Of the ocean tides. You see, what the Lord wants to do for you is tune you in to the Spirit and tune you into what's going on in the spiritual realm. Because remember, we don't fight against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. That's how the passage in Ephesians 6 starts that ends with, therefore, With all prayer and petition, pray in the Spirit at all times. It starts with the idea that we are engaged in a battle in the spiritual realm. 
And what prayer does is it affects the spiritual realm, and those things are manifest in the physical realm. And so to pray effectively, you've got to kind of be in tune with the Spirit, who knows exactly what's going on in the spiritual realm, so that we can pray effectively. Remember 2 Corinthians 10. Our prayer, our, literally says, our weapons of warfare are not carnal. But they are divinely powerful, or literally they have power with God for the tearing down of strongholds, spiritual strongholds. And, and so being in the Spirit, praying in the Spirit, means that we get tuned into what's going on in the spiritual realm. And so now the Holy Spirit can teach us how to pray with specifics. And I'll guarantee you that's what Paul was doing from that prison cell in Rome. He was praying specifically for the Laodiceans and the Colossians because he had revelation from the Holy Spirit. He was praying in the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit guides us into prayer. He'll give you a prayer burden. Have you ever experienced this? A brother just testified this to me the other day. He said, man, this one night I was at home group and we were just praying. And Britt, quite frankly, we weren't thinking about you or talking about you, which is good. I appreciate that. But all of a sudden, the Spirit of God put you upon my heart so heavily. I mean, I was just burdened for you. I mean, I just couldn't escape it. He said, it hit me like a ton of bricks. Pray for your pastor. Oh, I love it. Thank you, Lord. And and so we prayed. It was just a burden. And the, the Spirit of God wants to do that for you. But see, you need to be in the Spirit and walking in the Spirit to hear and discern that from the Spirit. And then he wants to give you a burden. He wants to give you direction. He might give you um, some spiritual thing to pray for or against. He might give you a person to pray for or a situation or a people group or a context. But he wants to guide you in prayer. And listen to me, church. Seek to be in the Spirit as much as possible because there's so much to pray for. And then when you're in the Spirit, should the Lord give you a burden or a leading, pray for that thing. It's a grievous sin to receive a burden from the Lord and say, oh, later. Because you know what? Let's be honest. Later never comes for many of us. When the Lord gives you a burden, that's, that's the Holy Spirit inviting you to pray in the Spirit with the knowledge and revelation of Him, from Him. Isn't that awesome? And, and the last thing that Jesus said he, the Holy Spirit does is He helps us, and, and He helps us in prayer. Now, let's read together Romans eight twenty six through 28. Romans 8, 26 through 28. It says, The Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now, notice what the Bible says very clearly in verse 26. The Spirit helps our weakness because we don't know how to pray as we should. Okay? The Bible just calls it like it is. We don't know how to pray like we should. But the Holy Spirit is given to help us to pray as we should. And so R.A. Torrey, in his little book, How to Pray, has a great bit of advice. He says this, When we come into God's presence, we should recognize our weaknesses. 
our ignorance of what we should pray for and how we should pray for it. In our consciousness of our utter inability to pray properly, we should look up to the Holy Spirit, casting ourselves utterly upon Him to direct our prayers. He must lead our desires and guide our utterance of them. Nothing can be more foolish in prayer than to rush into God's presence and ask for the first thing that comes into your mind. It makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? And so there should be this concept for praying in the Spirit that, that, that once we're in the Spirit, we say, okay, Lord, show me. Lord, teach me. And when we have our corporate prayer times, one of the things that I'm praying for continually, just quietly between me and the Lord, is, Lord, show us how to pray right now. Show us what to pray for. Show us how to pray. Lord, give us revelation. Holy Spirit, help us. And have you ever been in a prayer meeting where people are just in the flow of the Spirit? I mean, you hit upon this vein, and it's like, it's like a vein of gold, you know? And you just keep following it. You just keep mining the riches of it. And the Spirit leads this person to pray this, and then this person to pray that, and they just dovetail together. And it just goes on and on and on. And through that, the Spirit is revealing things. And He's bringing about victory, and He's showing us how to pray. And have you ever been in that? And then there's this sense of excitement, and it's just, oh, this is awesome. We're in the Spirit. We're praying in the Spirit. And then just quite frankly, sometimes, you know, you just, everyone's in the flow of the Spirit and the Spirit is giving us revelation, showing us how to pray. And then someone goes, and Lord, for my Aunt Becky's swollen toe back in Indianapolis, if you would just help her toe. Now that was an awesome, sweet prayer, but it wasn't maybe in the flow. And sometimes you can see that, that there's a a flow of the Spirit, praying in the Spirit, and then someone comes kind of from left field. And we don't want to condemn that person, but we just want to call it what it is. We ought to seek to pray in the revelation of the Spirit. Individually, Lord, show me how to pray, what to pray for. And corporately, Lord, show us how to pray, what to pray for, because the Spirit knows all things. We don't know. We're so finite. He's infinite. And so it's, it's wonderful to pray in that way because, quite frankly, as the Bible says, we don't know how to pray as we should. But the Holy Spirit is given as the guide and the teacher and the help. Now, look how the passage says he helps us. It says, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. You know, sometimes you're praying and, and you just come to the end of yourself. You just, moms know exactly what I'm talking about. Praying for their children. Moms know exactly what I'm talking about. You just could not pray enough for your child. But there comes a point where you just reach the end of your knowledge. The end of your insights. The end of your own words. And it is at that moment when we get to the end of ourselves that the Holy Spirit can be most helpful to us in prayer. You see, the spiritual gifts, the gifts of the Spirit, are supernatural God-given abilities to meet overwhelming needs or circumstances. The gifts of the Spirit are God-given supernatural abilities to meet overwhelming needs or circumstances. And praying in tongues is one of the gifts of the Spirit. And many see praying in tongues, or sometimes phrased prayer language, 
as being spoken of here in Romans chapter 8, verses 26 through 28. Many see that this passage is speaking of the notion of a prayer language or praying in tongues. And it may be, quite frankly, there's a lot of debate about this, this passage. We're not sure if the groanings are our groanings, and then the Holy Spirit takes our groanings when we run out of things to say and turns them into effective intercession before God. Or if the Spirit groans through us, then perhaps it's a prayer language. Or if the Spirit Himself is groaning on our behalf. That seems to be the, the least likely because the idea of that groaning there is really despairing in circumstances. And the Holy Spirit doesn't despair. So there's some debate about whether this passage is speaking about prayer language or, or praying in tongues, but, but it, it comes very close. At the very least, it's very close because that word help there in our text, he helps us, is the same word used in other places in the Bible, most notably Luke chapter 10, verse 40 where Martha says to Jesus, tell Mary to help me. Now, the only thing I want you to know about that is she wasn't saying, tell Mary to do the work instead of me. It was, tell Mary to help me to do the work. That's what that word means, to cooperate, to come alongside. And so when it says here that the Spirit helps our prayer life, it's not that he prays instead of us necessarily but that we cooperate with him in the ministry of prayer, which is usual of all the gifts. You know what I mean? If I'm exercising my gift of teaching, it's a gift from the Holy Spirit. It's by the power and the work of the Holy Spirit, but it's not the Holy Spirit teaching instead of me. It's me in cooperation with the Holy Spirit's. It's the Holy Spirit working through me. Now, that is true of all the gifts. They are a cooperative thing. You're working with the Spirit and the Spirit with you and through you. Now, to define speaking in tongues, it is very simply this. Prayer or praise spoken in syllables not understood by the speaker. Very simple, right? Prayer or praise spoken in syllables not understood by the speaker. It is the Holy Spirit enabling our spirits to pray directly to God. The Holy Spirit enabling your spirit to pray directly to God without your mind having to formulate words or sentences or deciding what to pray for. You understand that? It's because you've come to the end of yourself. The spiritual gifts don't kick in until you get to the end of yourself. That's why it's such a rip-off, Christian, if you never take chances in the Lord. You never step out in faith. You just stay within your comfort zone. You'll never experience the power of the Spirit there. Because the gifts of the Spirit don't kick in until you come to the end of yourself. And when you come to the end of your ability to pray, then the Holy Spirit can give you the gift of tongues for prayer or a prayer language, which is very simply His Spirit the Holy Spirit enabling your spirit to pray directly to God without your mind having to formulate or think or even know. It's supernatural, and it is for supernatural needs. Now, there are two ways that the the gift of tongues is exercised. One is publicly, and the other is privately. 
And we're just dealing with the private exercise of tongues today. We're not going to talk about the public one. I've got teachings on the website and CDs back there if, you're, if your interest is peaked and you want to hear more. But we're just dealing with the, the private one today. The public one always requires that there's interpretation. But the private one does not require interpretation. It is your spirit speaking to, praying to God as defined very clearly in 1 Corinthians 14, sometimes called the prayer language. Now, sometimes Christians get real weird and legalistic about the difference between these two. Because we know for sure that with regards to the public use, if we're gathered corporately and and someone speaks in tongues, that in the corporate gathering it shouldn't be more than two or three, and there always must be interpretation, 1 Corinthians 14 says. It's very clear on that. There's no mistaking that at all. No mistaking that at all. But the public context doesn't simply mean that there's other people around you. It means that what you're doing is for public consumption. It is for the body. And so if you speak tongues for the body, out loud for everybody to hear, purpose for their edification, then there must be an interpretation. Now, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the private use. But sometimes, as I said, people get tripped up and legalistic and weird in that there'll be some people in a prayer group or just people around praying, and you'll hear someone praying in tongues. And their prayer language and the legalistic, not understanding person says, oh, 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 see, no, there's got to be an interpretation. No, there doesn't. That was not for public consumption. That was not a corporate activity. That was that person exercising their private prayer life. No different than if you heard me praying out loud in a, in a prayer group. Other than the fact that it was the Spirit of God enabling their spirit to be speaking directly to God without their mind. That doesn't require an interpretation, and you shouldn't trip out on that. It wasn't for public consumption. It it is a private use, but people get so weird about that. They put these negative connotations on the gift of tongues. Like you just saw a picture of that person like in their birthday suit or something. You heard their prayer language. Oh my goodness. ah." That's just wrong and silly and immature and legalistic and dumb. It's okay to be in a prayer context and exercise a prayer language. And this is what Paul is speaking about in 1 Corinthians 14, 14 through 15. We have it on PowerPoint where he says, For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays. Lowercase s, not the Holy Spirit. My spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. I shall pray with the Spirit, and I shall pray with the mind also. In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 14, he's repeatedly talking about both the public use and the private use. The public use and the private use. He goes back and forth. And right here, he's addressing the private use. And he says, If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful, or it doesn't have understanding of what's being prayed. I shall pray in the Spirit, yes, with a prayer language. But I shall also pray with my mind with normal language, and and that which is understood. You see, the two are mentioned there. But both of them need to be praying in the Spirit. Whether you're praying with utterances devised in your mind, you've got to be praying in the Spirit. And you've got to be praying in the Spirit if you're going to pray with a prayer language given to you by God. They've both got to be in the Spirit, and both should be exercised if you have a prayer language, if you have that gift. important to say that you could not have that gift 
and still have just as an effective of a prayer life. If God wants you to have that gift, the gift of praying in tongues, then he will give you that gift. If that's not what he has for you, then that's not what he has for you. It doesn't mean that you're any less effective overall as a Christian. And the Bible does not teach that everybody should have the gift of tongues. The Bible does not teach that. Paul says all do not speak in tongues, do they? In 1 Corinthians. Not everybody is supposed to have that. But for whom the Lord wills, for whom the Spirit wants to have it. Now, in my own personal life, I'll just give you my testimony because maybe it will encourage some of you. I asked uh, to be able to pray in the Spirit for years, about seven years. Asked the Lord repeatedly, all the time. Just was excited to do it. Just, want, just thought it was cool, you know what I mean? And just wanted to do it. But the Lord would never give it to me. And one time, in a time of just seeking the Lord and, and waiting on Him, you know, I had just asked him for that gift, and the Lord spoke to my spirit very clearly and said, Britt, I've heard you sometimes make fun of that gift. Why would I give that to you? Why would I give that to you if you make fun of it? Wow. Just broke my heart. Just rocked me. Just rocked me. And I really had to search my heart. I had to repent, and I had to really dive into the Word of God to gain an understanding for speaking in tongues, to gain a, a respect for that gift and how useful it is in the body and in the life of an individual. Paul says if someone prays in tongues, they edify themselves. It, it builds you up tremendously. And so the Lord said, I'm not going to give it to you because, son, you got a bad attitude. Now, I repented of that, and a couple years went by again. And it was at Reality, the college ministry, on a Friday night a few years ago, and I was teaching through uh, the gifts of the Spirit, and I happened to be speaking on that that night. I had to be speaking on uh, the gift of tongues. And I said, now let's have a time of praying for it. And I'll, I'll never forget this little uh, Filipino guy that was in our fellowship for a long time. Soon as I said amen and closed the service, he walked right up to me. And he said, you don't have it, and I want to pray for you. And I'll tell you what, I didn't have much faith. I had asked the Lord 900 million times. Didn't have much faith for it. I said, okay, that's cool, man. I got down off the platform. It was just like this. And I stepped down off the platform, and he laid his hands on me. And I didn't have much faith, but he had faith for me. He said, Lord, if it's your will, give your servant, Brett, the gift of tongues. He wants to be able to pray in that way, Lord. If it's your will, give it to him in Jesus' name. That's all he prayed. I didn't feel anything, didn't see anything, didn't start to speak in tongues at that moment. And I just was kind of polite, oh, thank you, thank you, I'm blessed, thank you. And he walked away. And I just went and sat down and, and, and just began to praise the Lord, you know, and was like we do here, just worshiping the Lord on the carpet and just praising him and was just in the spirit and got to a point where there was nothing more that I could say to praise the Lord, and then it came. And I just started speaking in a language that I had never known. I had received the gift of tongues. And when I was praising and praying to the point that I came to the end of myself, because that young man had acted in faith, all of a sudden I had received the gift of tongues and I started to pray in tongues. And boy, I got to tell you, I was just built up. I was just excited. My, my faith was built up and I was blessed. Now, the Lord may have it for some of you today. Or not. 
Not everybody receives that gift. Not everybody has a gift of teaching. Not everybody has a gift of compassion. Not everybody has a gift of giving. Not everybody has every gift. He may have it for some of you today. He may not. But the summation is this. Every one of us can pray in the Holy Spirit. With the atmosphere of the Spirit, the attitude of the Spirit, with the leading of the Spirit, the knowledge of the Spirit, the inside of the Spirit, the burden of the Spirit. Every one of us could and should pray in the Spirit. And just a small aspect, don't let it overshadow it, just a small aspect of that is your prayer language or praying in tongues if the Lord would give that to you. But maybe you realize today as we spoke that Man, your prayer life is dry, lifeless, and uninspired. Without question. No doctrinal argument here. You need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. If your prayer life is just dry and burdensome and a bummer and non-existence, you need the fullness of the Spirit in you. Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, You shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And in Acts chapter 2, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And so maybe you're realizing, man, there's a lack of unction, a lack of power, and a lack of passion in this area in my life. I I need to be filled or baptized with the Holy Spirit. Maybe you don't know if you've ever been baptized by the Holy Spirit. All you got to do, Jesus already said it, how much more will the Father give you the Holy Spirit when you ask for it? All you got to do is ask. Maybe you have been baptized initially in the Holy Spirit, but you just know you need a fresh feeling. I mean, you, brother, you just in the flesh. And you just need a fresh feeling to just overflow. Just, you just need to be submersed in who the Spirit is and have Him just overcome you and come upon you. You just need to ask for that. And maybe you want the gift of tongues or some other gift. Maybe you say, Lord, give me a burden for intercession or give me a burden for the nations or just teach me to pray for my kids. Teach me to pray for my wife, whatever it is. If you ask in the name of Jesus, you have that thing for which you asked. So the prayer team's going to come up. They're going to be up here and you can come and ask for any of those things. But I think that if anyone would be here and right now you're saying, oh, I know I need to be filled with the Spirit to pray right. If that's you, then I'll, I'll pray that for you corporately. If that's you, why don't you just stand up right where you are? You know you need the power of the Holy Spirit to come in fresh. Just stand up where you are. Awesome. Wonderful. Okay, Lord, thank you so much. Thank you so much for your word and the promises and thank you, Father, for the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we need you. You've been drawing us into prayer. You've been instructing us in prayer. You've been challenging us, but we need the unction. We need the power. We need to be in the Spirit. And so, Lord, these are your precious ones, your children that stand here now. And they're coming before you, Father, and saying, Father, I may not understand everything about it, but I know I need it. I know that I need power from on high. There's too much of me, too much flesh. I want more of the Holy Spirit. I want the fullness thereof. These are your children, your precious ones that stand before you. And so we would ask together and agree in prayer now, the Holy Spirit, you would come upon them. The Holy Spirit, you would fall. For some, the first time you would fall upon them and baptize them in power. For others, you'd come upon them afresh and fill them again. 
We ask that you'd fill them in such a way that the very foundations of their lives would be shaken. That there would come from these lives a a new power, a new passion, a new unction, a new insight, a new leading, a new guiding. For prayer and for ministry and for holy living. Lord, we receive it by faith. We don't look for any experience. We receive it by faith. Lord, if there's an experience that you want us to have, then we receive that by faith. We want just what you have for us, nothing more and nothing less. But we know we need the power. And so, Holy Spirit of the living God, fall afresh upon us. Fill us. We ask it not on any merit of our own or our own authority, but we ask it on the merit and the authority and the access and according to the account of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.